All right, nice to see you. Thanks for being here. Nice to see you. You okay? Everybody all right? It's okay with the new seating arrangement. Didn't throw you off too much. Came in and climbed over a few extra seats. Basically, we did that because there was no back of the church. And everybody had to come through that door, and you were coming in the front of the church. And everybody was kind of uncomfortable with that whole thing. And as you know, and as the Hensleys are demonstrating, some people like to be in the way back of the church. And when there's no back of the church, there's like, like I'm not even going to go to that church. You know, you got to leave some space for everybody. So we're just trying to create what we need here to be comfortable and um, have friends join us and all that. Well, while I was doing communion, um, I was looking around and uh, your faces, and I, I turned over here and I saw uh, Jack and Aaron Irvin. Many of you know them. Um, and Aaron's parents are here, and I just thought to myself, "What did I say, Aaron? Yeah, you're still married to Erica, right, Jack? It's Erica, Jack and Erica." Um, and her parents, but you probably don't know this, maybe you don't, um, have just recently retired from the ministry. They've pastored uh, church for years and years. And how long did you pastor, you guys? How long were you doing that gig? 40 years. <laughs> for just 40 years. And I just thought to myself, I'm just so thankful uh, for you and the ministry you've done. And we're, and we're glad you're among us. So thank you for your work. We all thank you. We appreciate you. And your daughter, Erin, appreciates you very much, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, six weeks ago, uh, I answered this question with regard to this Franz Road project we got going on over in the Northwest. Uh, what am I asking you to do? And, you know, the, the practical parts of it are we have this $4 million project uh, 40,000 square foot building and the, the, maybe the first possible permanent home in the Northwest. Um, but on a spiritual level, because it's really more spiritual than anything else. I, I, I know when you, I know many of, some of you, when you hear me say that, are thinking, well, that's what a pastor has to say. It's a spiritual exercise. But it, it, by, it is. Um, anything we do as Christians first and foremost, is a spiritual exercise. We're talking about this in the book of Mark, that life is a test. We talked about it in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul said, we consider it a glory that we suffer. Our, our suffering is a, a glory through which we discover the perseverance of the spirit within us and the, the, the building of character and, and this hope, this faith that comes as a result of that. Every Thing we undertake as a church, as a Christian, is a test. It's, a, it's an opportunity to express who we are and what we believe. And there are some significant moments that come around in the church, and this is one of them. So what I asked you to do more than anything was to lean into a faith exercise, to think about what it means to be faithful in this space, what it means to believe, what it would, what it would look like to trust God, maybe on a level financially that, that we never have. <laughs> and here's why. It will require a stretch of faith from all of us, all of us, to be able to secure this location for 
the Northwest Church. So I invite you to keep leaning into that um, and potentially even launch you into a, a different level of discipleship as a result of it. It wouldn't end when this is over, right? I'm still inviting you into that faith work, into that heart work, into the intellectual work of the considering what it means to steward the resources that God gave us. Let me give you an update on the numbers. Here's, here's where we're at. Um, you might recall it, where we're at right now with the building and the owner is $3 million for that building. It's not worth that much. We know that. I don't think that's going to be the landing point. But that's where we are in the negotiations right now. It's going to cost us a half a million dollars to put it in shape at least a little bit. And then in the next year, it's going to create operating costs. That's the, the ripple effect of a, of a building. There's more that you've got to do than just get a building. So you add all those up, minus what I think might be the final price, might be more like two and a half. So you take that out. So the project costs probably like three and a half if things go well in the negotiations. Be nice if we didn't have to take more than a million dollars in bank loan. We've got a little more room than that, but that'd be nice. And we have early commitments, personal proposals from a handful of folks in the church that adds up to a million dollars already. <clears throat> so what that means is there's a million and a half left that we all need to step in and do. Um, there's about... There's between 150, 200 giving households in Vista. I don't know if everybody's going to choose to be a part of this. It's a, it's a, hear me out on this. It's a legitimate thing that God might say to you, this is not the time. But we're, we're <laughs> being ready and, have, and being faithful means listening to God's direction for you, whatever it is, from zero to whatever. But it, it, it does still mean that we need a few more significant gifts and for everybody to stretch their giving. It's going to be a faith exercise. That's, that's the facts. What do I, I want to say? My message to you is a little bit different than it is to the Northwest folks. Because here's what I imagine is lingers in the corners of your mind if, you're, if you attend this church. <laughs> Maybe you wouldn't admit this, but I know it's there. We have a building. Isn't it kind of up to them to get their own building? You know, they're the Northwest. It's for them. We're not even going to go there. I don't know if you know this, but the whole church bought this building. And for the last five years, which is how long we've owned this building, <laughs> the Northwest has covered 70% of the operating costs of this building and staff and everything else. You might want to put this into the category of gratitude. Right? We're, able to, we're going to give faithfully, just like they have for years and support us and we're going to support them back and be thankful that we have this and we've been able to uh, do all that we've been able to do here. And we hope to do it again. A very similar type of a situation 
where we are able to use the additional space that God may provide to um, bless the community and to collaborate in ways that maybe we wouldn't otherwise, otherwise be able to do it. So think of it, as a, think of it as a gratitude type of a space. So keep praying, keep listening. Next weekend will be sort of the end of the commitment space for us. On November 7th, we'll add it all up and see where we're at. So at whatever point in time during this week, you are ready to commit. Did we get cards? Were there cards this morning? So you got a card. Um, we actually need commitments. Like, because the bank wants to be able to show in hard numbers that we can do what we're saying we're going to do. So I need you to fill out that card and hand it in next week, or you'll be able to access an electronic card, and you can do it that way. You can find your way to most of anything you need at the Give tab on our website. Two commitments. We need significant gift by the end of the year so we can buy this thing, which is very unusual. Normally, that's not the way this thing, these things go. Normally, you take a long period of time and you make long-term um, contributions and commitments. We're just like under a time constraint based on the owner's timeline to sell this building by the end of the year, which hopefully will actually work in our favor, right? It's what he wants to do, not us. Um, so we need those. And then we need to know what you're going to be able to do in a regular giving sort of way for the next couple years. So let me know both of those things sometime this week, no later than uh, next Sunday, okay? That's where we're at. I am encouraged. If we're faithful and sacrificial, it's going to work. I believe that. And if it doesn't, here's the other thing I know. Oh, okay, God. You have some different plan for us, which I'm, I'm just as interested. Whatever God's plan is uh, right here, I'm interested in it, right? This is the one we feel like we should go after and trust him for. He's got a plan one way or the other. All right, enough said about that? Okay, this is the big week. Thank you for being a part of it. Thank you for being a part of this church. I think the future is really, really bright. All right, so we're looking at the book of Mark. If you have a Bible, you might want to open it. If you have a little app on your phone, you could open that. We're going to be looking at verses 14, 15, 16, 17. And by uh, the, sort of the big picture on this is we're looking at the life of Jesus as the one who walked through the struggle of life, through the temptations, um, uh, through the test through the struggle, with unwavering faith. Jesus didn't mess up even one time, even in the remotest sense. He is the, the perfect example for us for how to live out Romans 5. And so we look at it from that perspective. What can we learn from Jesus as he worked through the test of life? What, what should we anticipate? We talked about a test. Do you remember, if you were here last week, we talked about what a test is. It's a set of problems or challenges that reveal what? The truth. A test reveals the truth. That's why we don't like them. They tell us how hard we worked, how much we studied, what we remember. A geometry test tells you about your spatial intelligence. 
A high jump contest tells you a little bit about the spring in your muscles. Tells you the truth. An inability to resist access to a, a, a pornographic website tells you the truth about yourself. Life is a test. It tells us the truth. Children are a test. Difficult relationships are a test. Demands on our time are a test, and they tell us the truth about ourselves. The Franz Road Project is a test. And Jesus' first test in the wilderness, following this glorious declaration of God, that he was the Son of God, and that God was well pleased with him. Following that glorious declaration, before they even have a chance to take a breath, he is in the, he is in the wilderness being tested and proving that what was just declared about him is true. The test was there to tell the truth. And Jesus... Proved it his whole life. The heavens were torn apart. The spirit descended on him like a dove. And he heard, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God. Right? So you see it. God says, you are my son. And the tempter says, are you really? If you are, then... And he tests him. He tempts him to be something other than who he is. We should be clear that the temptation in the wilderness, this test is not a story about the devil luring God, luring Jesus out into the wilderness. It's the story of the Spirit of God pushing Jesus out there into the test that is administered by some evil that's difficult to depict, but we know is there to lie and to accuse and challenge what was true. And so we ask this question, and we're going to ask it for weeks and weeks and weeks as we look at Jesus' life through the book of Mark. What does Jesus' example then mean to me now? What can we learn from that passage? In this particular case, what can we learn regarding identity? This is a test about identity. What, what do we learn from that? What, what can we, Jesus was the son of God. Who am I? Who am I? How do you answer that question? How you answer that question says a lot about you. <laughs> Think about uh, how you answer that question differently depending on who asks you who you are. We're almost always trying to impress the person who just asked us who we are. instead of just telling them who we are. Who do others say that you are?
Doesn't mean that that's who you are. But it does oftentimes mean that who you are isn't in alignment with who others think you are or who you are to them. All these things should give us some clues. What defines you? What defined Jesus? Well, he was a lot of things, just like us, right? He was, he was a teacher. He was a carpenter. He was a fisherman. He was a cook. He was a friend to the outcast. He was a compassionate person. He was poor. He came from a very small village. His parents, people were like, I don't know about them. Pretty sure they weren't married. When she, you know, they don't get that. They were a little bit dishonored, probably. He was a brother. But his core identity came from heaven, and it was declared upon him and proven to be true. And many witnessed that he was the son of God, which was outrageous. And that identity was constantly tested. Jesus was perpetually tempted, like you and I, to live and act and be outside of our true identity. So like Jesus, there are many things. You could, you could give many answers to the question, who are you? But what we're asking here is what's your core identity? Out of what core truth, out of what definition do you think and decide and imagine and act? What is that identity? And what are the different ways that that identity is tested? In what ways in this life is our true identity as Christians threatened? Who are we? We get some clues from the next few passages we're looking at in Mark chapter 1. Here's uh, 14 and 15. And this is, this is right after Jesus is baptized and then thrust out into the wilderness in this temptation. This is what we read. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We go on, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen, which is kind of, I appreciate Mark throwing that in there. If you're wondering why these guys were throwing a net into the sea, Mark says, because they were fishermen. And why does he do that? Because he's retelling a story and he's writing it in such a way that we can remember. He's using a play on words. He goes, they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you uh, fishers of men. They were fishermen. And Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. What catches your attention here regarding identity? They were fishermen. They were going to be fishers of men, which is not very exciting. Fishing is boring for me. I hate fishing. <laughs> I, hate, I hate it. I've had two excellent fishermen take me fishing at separate times with the express purpose of changing my perspective on fishing. And both of them, we came to shore 
hours later, both of them, I kid you not, said, that was the worst fishing I have ever done. You have to go again. That was terrible. And I'm like, no, this is what it is. You're living in a dream world, an illusion. <laughs> fishing is not exciting. It's not, it's, not, it's not political. It's not powerful. It's not popular. Jesus is going to turn them into something. He's going to give them an identity um, that isn't exciting. Uh, he's asking them to follow him. This is a good, this is a thing. Their identity is, if they accept, is going to be that they are following this teacher. That's a big part of the identity of a young, Jesus, a young Jewish boy. To have a rabbi call them into following. That's a, that's a big deal. What's implied here that is not explicitly said is that the identity of these disciples and us by implication, right, however we say it, comes from Jesus. This is kind of the thing we need to see in this passage is Jesus is giving them not just a core identity, but some other identities. Like all of who they are is going to come from Jesus, He gives us a vocation. He gives us a calling. He gives us someone to follow. Our identity as Christians is all wrapped up in Jesus. We just sang a song and we said, we, we owe him everything. He's done everything for us. Andrew prayed. He's done it all. We have what we have and we are who we are because of Jesus. Our identity is the whole description of what it means to be in Christ. Everything that we studied in the book of Romans, to be established in Christ is our identity. No matter what these passages suggest, Explicitly, what is being implied is that their new identity has everything to do with Christ. After Jesus was resurrected, he, he showed up in a room that was locked, physically showed up in a room that was locked and shutting people out. And he said to the disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. You see the parallels there even of what happened to Jesus in the Jordan. That the Spirit of God descended upon him. In our case, Jesus breathes the Spirit of God into us and says, Peace be with you. And then he gives them this vocation. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Do you know that is a purely, for these, for these Jews, that was purely a God vocation. Nobody, nobody other than God had anything to do with forgiving anybody. 
Jesus is saying, look, your identity is God sent. I am bringing your identity to you. I am your identity. And by my spirit, I am living in you. Jesus is saying, I am God incarnate. I am God in the flesh. I'm speaking peace into your life. I am giving you the spirit, and the spirit is the indwelling essence of God in you. (laughs) This is who we are. We are God's sent. We are Jesus wrapped. And one other thing, our identity is God-centric. Listen to verse 14 15 again. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what catches your attention about this verse? I tell you what catches my attention. I can't even get past the first five words. <laughs> John has been maligned on Jesus' behalf. His character was questioned. He had followers, lots of them. He was Jesus' cousin. In a manner of speaking, they met each other before they were even out of the wombs, if you go back and read the early parts of the Gospels. And when Jesus showed up, John did his job, and he pointed to Jesus and said, there is the one. There is the Lamb of God. There is the Messiah. There is the one that all of the world has been waiting for for Thousands of years. There he is. He says things like, he's more powerful than I. Follow him. John turned all of his disciples, all of what could have arguably gave him his sense of significance. His job is done. He did what he was called to do. His disciples are being let go to another leader who's more powerful than he. That Savior goes on from there and calls other people to follow him. We just read that. And John goes to jail. Work that out. Put yourself in that situation. (laughs) He's not even powerful enough to keep me, his cousin, out of jail. And he's just going and getting other people. How deeply must that have hurt? Do you ever have a friend make other friends? (laughs) It's 
weird how we don't like that. I thought I was your friend. <laughs> what we mean to say is, I thought I was your only friend. And I thought you liked it that way. He's in jail. Our identity is a God-centric identity. This is one of the toughest ideas for our Western modern minds to get around. We tend not only to imagine and work toward a world revolving around us, we also think it's up to us to fix the world. We have a very me-centric identity. If angels like, could tell jokes or were cynical in any way, which I think would be impossible for them, but just bear with me for a minute. I think one of the jokes would go like this. How many, how many humans does it take to, to screw in a light bulb? One angel says the other. I don't know. And he says, one. They just hang on, and the whole world revolves around them. We tend to have a me-centric Identity. Jesus calls the Jews to repent. He goes to, to, to Galilee and he says, repent and believe the gospel. The Jews <laughs> completely understood that they were right and that they were good and that they were beautiful to God. Why would the incarnate God tell them to change their course, to shift their attitude, to, to, to repent of, to ask forgiveness of, confess of being wrong? They were being rattled out of their me-centric world. For someone to come and tell a Jew to repent, it's crazy. It's not the Jews that need to repent, it's everybody else. You can see it even in our understanding of the very gospel that Jesus is talking about. So repent and believe the gospel. If you ask, probably, if you ask 10 people what, if to, to explain to you what you believe as a Christian, say, hey, you know, I'm a Christian. Tell me what I believe. Seven out of ten people are going to tell you something a little bit like this. They're going to say, <clears throat> can you make that bigger? Okay. Uh, yay! Uh, there's, uh, this is my handwriting, that's why I can't read it. It says uh, that there's the earth, God created the world, and then at some point in the future, you can go to the next slide. At some point in the future, I, you know, I, I'm living, and at some point in the future, it's going to be determined whether I go to heaven or to hell. And it has a lot to do with how well you run that course. You're, are you mostly good? Do you have a good understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and what the Bible says? And if you have a more upside you know, then you have downside, then God will determine that you're going to go to heaven, and if not, you're going to go to hell. 
This is what people think you believe. And I know some of you are going, I, I, I thought that was what we believed. Yeah, it's, it's very me-centric. It's about me. It's about what I do and what I don't do. But in fact, this is the better story. This is the biblical story. There's Eden. You remember Eden? You remember the beginning of it all? You remember what was Eden? Eden was heaven on earth. Eden was heaven and earth together. And then the fall happens. Adam and Eve sin. They break confidence with God. They, they, they separate themselves in a sense. And earth and heaven are split apart. They're broken apart. It was all the way it should be. Heaven and earth. One place. And then they're broken. And then what happens? Jesus comes and we read right here, <clears throat> what we just read. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's written different ways in different parts of the government. The kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus shows up, and now heaven and earth are overlapping a little bit. Completely no. But where Jesus is, remember when Jesus taught us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth on earth as it is in heaven. And we live in that space as ones that have heaven within us. We have Jesus as our identity and the spirit indwelling within us. We are the bridge. We are the intersection. We are the overlap of heaven and earth. And now we, we live the rest of our life not trying to prove anything, not trying to gain access, just by faith, pointing to Jesus. It's all about him. We live on this really the top of this really, really slippery mountain. The top is rock-solid ice. You can't, you can't even stand up there. We slide down one side or the other. One side is condemnation, where we don't live up to God's standards, and we beat ourselves up, and we make ourselves distant from him, and we live in this valley of condemnation. Or we do, in our own minds, do everything that God asks us to do, and we go sliding down the other side into the valley of pride and arrogance and self-actualization, and I can do it. And the only way we can stay out of those valleys and stay in a space of grace is to grip onto that cross that hovers right above that precipice that Jesus is the only one that can stand up there, and we just hold on to him. And people say, what is your Christianity about? Who are you? And you say, look, I'm just hanging on to Jesus. <laughs> that's, my, that's my identity. Well, don't you do something? 
yeah, I have work to do, but this is who I am right here, just hanging on. Hanging on to Jesus. Is there one more slide? So this is, what, this is where it ends. At some point at the end of the deal, the back together, uh, the Jewish word is shalom, all things as they should be, back to Eden. And all that is opposed to God, all that is, uh, that, that is uh, uh, out of uh, alignment with God, all that has is in a place called hell that we actually truly vote know very little about, but we know it won't have anything to do with the world as it was supposed to be. And who puts the world back the way it's supposed to be? Us? No. Heavens, no. This is the good news. The good news, it's a, God, it's a God-centric world. It's not a me-centric world. It's not about you and me. That's the good news. doesn't seem like good news because our, again, our minds and our flesh and our instinct is to have it be about me. doesn't seem like good. The good news, it seems like the good news would be this, right? Hey, here's how it's going to go. You are the center of the world. The whole rest of the world is going to serve you. That seems like the best news ever. It's actually good news that we are not at the center. God is at the center. He is going to put everything back the way it is supposed to be. It's good news if we're humble enough to see, if we're humble enough to allow Jesus to let us see. It's problematic if we're arrogant. The good news is untenable if you're a narcissist. Our current culture, and quite honestly, our, a, a, a predominant part of Christian culture buys into this deceptive notion of thinking that it's about us, that we can change the world. There's no, there's no admonition in, in the Bible that tells us to change the world. It is to be changed. and to bring others into that space of being changed. The only thing that's going to change the world are changed hearts. There, there, is no, there is no political solution. There is no economic solution. There's no institutional solution. There is no worldly solution that brings about true change in the world. At best, if everybody buys into those solutions and lives according to those solutions, just like the law was to the Jews, we can all get along a little bit better, but just like the Jews, we're not really changed. It is not our job as Christians to change the world. I'm sorry to tell you. We get a lot of significance out of our me-centric approach to changing the world. I'm going to let you know a little secret. Most of us, me included, that have energy and passion to change the world aren't really interested in changing the world as much as we are feeling good about changing the world. 
I can sleep better at night and I can say that I can believe when the day comes where I got to go that I was good because I, I made a difference. <laughs> I don't know how to say this next thing nicely. I don't know. You, you know. You're just not making much of a difference. And neither am I. Honestly, we're not. <laughs> we, just, we just aren't. True, deep, the only way we're making a difference is as God is changing us and we are inviting others into the space to trust Jesus to be changed. That is a huge difference. To be fishers of men and women and children into the space of Jesus so that they could be changed. The best we can do in the world is try to create a place that seems much better than what our hearts would like. And if you look around in the world today, what you're seeing more than anything else is unfettered hearts. There is a new courage. There is a new freedom to be unashamedly ourselves. And what do you see when we are unashamedly ourselves apart from Christ? You see fighting, you see division, you see bickering, you see selfishness, you see unkindness, you see murder, you see all sorts of gross stuff coming out of the heart. (laughs) The world has been through a century of some of the greatest changes, some of the greatest advancements, capacity to... Um, uh, to, to feed the poor. And we get the curtain drawn back and we see the heart of humanity and it's like, whoa. Wow. The world is people. And the world only changes when the hearts of people are renewed by Jesus And as Jesus is continually pursued, Jesus says the kingdom, a right, good, and beautiful world is at hand. It is nearby, and it is, Jesus says, me. I am the kingdom. I am the peace of heaven. I am goodness and beauty. If you're with me, You're living in the kingdom of heaven. And that is a gargantuan switch from me-centric to God-centric. We are God-sent, Jesus-wrapped, God-centric people. The fullness of our identity, what we learn from Jesus, the fullness of our identity is found in that world, is found in the presence of God. The kingdom of God is Jesus. Who we are is found there, not by what we do, not by where we go. Your identity, your true identity is threatened when you find your most significant belongings and allegiances with the tribes in this world. Your identity is threatened when you find your most significant 
significances, you know what I mean? What makes you feel most significant when that comes from the approvals of this world, your true identity is being threatened. When the most significant awards that you seek come from this world, your, your identity is threatened when your most significant hopes come from what this world promises that you can have. Your true identity, on the other hand, is established, rooted, when you find significance in things of the kingdom. In giving rather than grabbing, in gratitude rather than grumbling, in vulnerability rather than protection, in serving rather than being served, right? We see the life of Jesus in, in giving recognition rather than gaining it, in deferring rather than powering up, in peace rather than problem solving, in resting rather than the rat race, in the presence of God rather than the productivity of our life. Our true identity is established when you find significance of those sorts in the kingdom. And where do you find those things? In Jesus. It is being with Jesus, not doing. Why, the world needs this so bad right now. Like we're thinking a lot about what we could or should do when we gather on Sunday mornings in 2022. And I'll tell you where my mind keeps going. I, I, just tend, to see, I tend to think in extremes. If you haven't noticed, <clears throat> work our way back to something normal. I'm thinking, just get rid of everything and let's just walk into a room and let's, let's say the Apostles' Creed and let's, let's say the Lord's Prayer and let's, let's put our resources at, at the center and ask God to bless them and let's pray and let's sing and let's read from the Word of God. And let's, let's commit ourselves to going into that space not for the purposes of getting something. I was listening to a Catholic talk to a Protestant, and I this was, he was spot on. The Catholic goes, what is it with you Protestants? You need this big experience like every single week. Every week, evangelicals, you need to be like, And he goes, we Catholics, we get nothing except for like once or twice a year. And he said, that's not wrong. It's like, it's, we're not there to get something. We're there to give something. And occasionally, uh, through the, the routine of just giving, if you will, the religion of, of doing the things that God would have us do and not getting something, occasionally God just shows up in an enormous way. And out of the unexpected, in the midst of there's something about that that really appeals to me right now. I wonder how it feels to you in a world that is so uncertain, so unpredictable, so difficult to navigate, so difficult to have a discussion. Not that we don't do those things in essence now. We do. But there's a part of me that wants to pare it down even more 
and just have moments together where we are just in the presence of Jesus in some routine ways. We need this, don't we? <laughs> There's like none of that going on. <laughs> it's just like, it's like I feel it's, this is what happens in Mark chapter one, verse 35. It's a little bit later in the same chapter. We're not even out of chapter one yet. Jesus, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Let me read this and get out of here. <clears throat> Let me encourage you to find as many opportunities as you can to turn off the distractions, the aspirations, the, productive, the productivity expectations, the tribal pressures, social media, all these things that distract and tempt us to find our identity in the wrong way. Let me encourage you to find a desolate place. It sounds bad, doesn't it? Desolate's not bad. Desolate meant nothing was going on out there. All the busyness of city, nothing. There was nothing out there. It was desolate. You know what it was? It was just Jesus, God. <laughs> That's not very desolate. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's life. But the physical surroundings desolate. Find a desolate place. Is that even possible? Is that even possible? You're a lot of your young families. I remember having a young family. I didn't, at this point, I look back, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I survived. I don't know how you have time for anything. How do you find a desolate place when you have so many responsibilities? Find a desolate, desolate place to know and to interact and to hear from Jesus. So that when you enter back into all of it, when you enter back into the test, you can now live out of the identity that is yours in Christ, that you deepened, that you remembered, that you locked in on in that desolate space. Go to that desolate place so that when you're back in it all, you can more quickly realize the world is pulling you to have your identity revolve around something other than Christ. It's in the desolate place, the quiet place, the undistracted place with Jesus and the spirit where your God-sent identity your Jesus-wrapped identity, your God-centric identity can be built and rebuilt and more deeply grounded and more clearly understood so that you can hold fast to your true identity so that you can stay at that intersection in the presence of God all the time, from now until eternity. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. We're trying to follow him, God. Thank you for the identity we have in your son, our access to you, our ability to pray, and in whom we find the grace and mercy as we fail at this time and time again. God, help us to live at the top of that mountain, just hanging on to you in the midst of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.